0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Jesse.
2: I am Tomahome. Hello, I'm Luke Burridge.
1: Hi, I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Mark Toretsky. And you narrated this audiobook. The I audiobook certainly of- did. Uh, have spacesuit, will travel. Now, uh, I, for some reason in my head, spacesuit is one word, <laughs> but I think that's probably just because I say it more often than a lot of people. <laughs> um, in, the, in the actual text, it's spacesuit. Yes, and it um, is and a the, long dash between suit and yeah. will. Uh-huh. Um, the, there's a comma in the have space, not have spacesuit, the have gun will travel, I think. Uh, that old TV show. if you guys yep. remember that. One. Um, but uh, I was looking up that phrase and apparently you can, it, it says have talks, will something, you know, like mm-hmm. go to party or something, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, which is kind of cute. Uh, did you know that this was his last quote unquote juvenile novel? Heinlein's last juvenile no- juvenile? Did not know that. Um,
3: it, it's certainly very refined. Um,
1: yeah totally
3: yeah i think that i did know it was in last one and i also think it's his one of his uh best early or one of his best early um like of his juvenile uh science fiction before he gets onto more pervy and political grounds <laughs> uh,
2: even though there's quite a
3: lot of politics there's quite a lot of politics in his uh um in his uh juvenile novels but uh yeah this is what this is a book when it, people always ask me like oh what's your top five science fiction books of course i have Personal favourites, but when I'm looking for a um, a, a range, uh, you know, a good introduction to different times and different mm-hmm. eras and different styles of science fiction, *How Space it Will Travel* is one of those books which I have generally thrown in there as a good example of like the Heinlein adventure style, juvenile style science fiction from the 1950s. Because I think that is one of the best
1: examples. Is, is a
3: classic. I mean, that
1: that is what makes it if people are thinking about Heinlein juvenile novels, this is actually the one they think of. Mm-hmm. And yep. it's, it's, uh, when Mark, you got the, uh, the contract to do this for Blackstone slash downpour. I mean, you've got to have been quote unquote over the moon. <laughs> oh yeah. Right? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I it, mean, it's, it's a the classic juvenile novel of Heinlein. Right. And Heinlein's the science fiction writer. Yeah. I was, uh,
4: yeah, it was it was really cool being able to do like such a classic um uh unfortunately it didn't win the uh the Hugo or the Nebula but uh it came close I think.
1: <laughs> surprising. Yeah, I, I don't know on that year but uh you know, I think time is the is the ultimate <laughs> fire in which, you know, these things are tested and uh, the fact uh, I I went to the bookstore and I looked, they they did not have it on the shelf. But they actually didn't have a lot of Heinlein. Um, they had uh, maybe Starship Troopers and mm-hmm. uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, right. which are uh, well, those are follow-up novels. They didn't have any juveniles. Maybe they're sold out.
3: Well, uh, yeah, the reason it didn't I, win a Hugo is because there weren't any Hugos. I think Hugo started in 1959. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, no, uh, no, know, uh, sorry, was, was sorry. the first one, and that was no, a that double was a retroactive one though. That's the thing. The early, double? the er- early Hugos okay. are retroactive Hugo. So. There wasn't a regular award
1: one until 1959. Hmm. Well, you may you may be right, but I think you're wrong. <laughs> 1959 uh, is the first Hugo. Wow. Well, that would have been the year that this would have been up. Ah, that's a point. Yeah, This um, came out in '58. Yeah, um, it was serialized in Fantasy and Science Fiction. By the way, um another interesting thing in fantasy and science fiction, which didn't do a lot of uh, Heinlein serializations, it was more of the art magazine rather than the, you know, the hard SF sort of magazine. Uh, not that this is, uh, it is pretty hard. There's I guess. Part, yeah,
0: there are some parts of it that are pretty hard SF.
1: Yeah, um, four years previously, uh, Philip K. Dick's story was published in there called "The Father Thing." Oh wow! Oh weird! <laughs> Just quite a different story. Um, I'm sure. But, uh, there's uh, there's some really cool thing happening I think in in like I, I probably didn't notice it the first time I read it which was when I was a teenager I'm sure um, which is about the relationship between the mother thing and the worm faces, or right. specifically worm face the first one mm-hmm. um, I love how Kip gives names to every character <laughs> so there's yeah. fatty slim right and then <laughs> later on when they're being tri- tried tried. It's no face. No face.
5: Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a a cute little uh, thing going on there. But um, worm face, when you you talk to him, you just have to do whatever he says, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's an intimidation rather than like it's like oh my god if I don't do this uh, 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 I'll die or something something bad will happen. Whereas the mother thing's power is the opposite. It's she totally manipulates you in the exact same way, but by boosting your confidence and telling you how good a boy you've been. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, that's, that's into that more when he goes to the mother thing's planet and um, and he meets a father thing and he says, oh, the father thing. There's not many of them, but they uh, when they walk in, they kind of uh, you, you suddenly have confidence in them and <laughs> you have respect <laughs> for them <laughs> immediately. So it feels like there's this like generalized rule. It's not just Wormface who can cast these spells on you. It's the mother thing and the father thing and these other Any things. Any advanced alien, maybe. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the, the ones that are sitting on that council, I guess. Like the green monkey. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah.
0: monkey was great. Like, I can do
1: somersaults and scratch myself and I'm still more advanced than you guys. That, that was a great <laughs> character, too, Mark. Yeah, oh, thanks. Um, you, you were talking about the characters you were... You were listening back to it. You you, you mentioned uh, Ace. Hey! Yeah. Yuck, 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 Yeah. Uh,
4: Ace was fun. Um, You know, just listening back, there's, like, this bit character who delivers the spacesuit. And I just, like, I was just taken aback by, like, oh, I gave this guy a real character. Because he he was like, hey, you want this spacesuit delivered here? Sign this. (laughs) You know, like that. Yeah. Uh, It was a lot of fun. Yeah. but uh, there's an interesting thing um, in that he a lot of the the space characters are sort of reflected in Earth characters. Hmm. So at the end yeah. of the book, he says, "You know, like when he hears his mother speaking, he's like, "Oh, well, for a second, I thought it might have been the mother thing." <laughs>
5: yeah. And
4: you have the um no face is called the the moderator, who's this synthesis of all these different people. Uh, and machines, um, and that's a lot like Pee Wee's father, who's referred to as the Synthesist, mm-hmm. who, um, you know, he and and he's also it seems like the best connected person on Earth. Yeah. Um, and you know, there you can probably draw a parallel between Ace Quiggle and Wormface. They're you know the local bully. You know, one's the local space bully, and the other is uh, right. Uh, um. So I thought that was interesting. It might, you know, I. Don't, That's
2: yes. Yeah. So are you yeah. saying it's all a dream, like The Wizard of Oz? It, like at the end, well, uh, it, all her it's, friends are like the.
1: <laughs> everything. Well, it's very nice. It, it is tied into the green monkey. Right? <laughs> but, yeah, but also um, think of what Ace predicts. He's in the. He's he's making fun of uh, Kip in you know his soda jerk job, and what does he do? He says, "Hey, you you good old. Oh wait, I'm doing the wrong voice. Anyway." He's going to go sp- fight space pirates, right? Yeah. And uh, he's going to go save the universe, right? <laughs> he's right. He's going to go save yeah. the uh, – saving planets. And then at the end, that it, it comes back and ties it all up. But it, it is like – didn't he just like one of his – He's he's lying out in the field, right, with his spacesuit on and one of his uh oxygen cords is like kinked or
3: something. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> this is all a hallucination of a boy who Well, I think it's kind of hammered home at the ship. end. It's kind of hammered home at the end that it isn't. It's one of the it reminds yeah. me of the end of the movie Contact where they're like, Hmm, and this was all just a hallucination and you're just making it all up. It was a whole hoax. It's like <clears> how <throat> did we record this twenty eight hours of static rather than it should have been zero hours of static yeah. rather than twenty eight, you know? It, it yeah. does feel like uh, uh, one of those things. It's like, no, really, we we have to put in that this isn't. And I don't think Kip or anybody else has any doubt at all that it didn't really happen for real. No, um, well, no, that's absolutely does, yeah, true. The, 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 it, the copy it, it does add a resonance, it's a bit though. like Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah, it adds a, a real resonance. Um, and he's not from Kansas; he's from Colorado. But the uh, there there is a uh, a resonance for it all the way through. And Kip, I mean this maybe the reason it is his last juvenile is because it is so meta in that way mm-hmm. I mean a lot of heinlein's later stuff there there's one novel where he has you know all the a bunch of different characters coming in uh in different timelines in different universes multiverses um one in one novels uh the rolling stones i guess it's called also called space family stone they they are off adventuring you know around the solar system and then in another book those characters oh no they are writing a uh and they're the way they make their living is by writing a a soap opera uh like a radio soap opera Mm -hmm. and then in another story both of those the the soap opera characters and the and the uh the family are like at a party together, <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then you know, fifteen other characters. So it, it's like he's sort of meeting. He, this is the story that is m- most um, about being a juvenile, mm-hmm. kind of right. So maybe you just like okay, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> do something different. And next one is Starship Troopers, which is quite a, quite a bit different in tone, but also it uses a lot of the. Experience, I mean, this is a really good book for just telling you what a spacesuit feels like. Yeah, right? yeah, oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah, that was the best uh, part in the beginning sh- with the spacesuit. Yeah. Uh, it is, it's, it's oh, he probably
3: it all it, together.
2: Uh, it's and then he goes a trip
1: across a uh, yeah. Sorry. No, go, go for it, Luke.
3: Oh, I am just saying that you're going to be doing on the SF, SF of audio the, the Martian, um, uh, mm-hmm. the a recent novel, and and uh, me and Juliana already reviewed it on the SFBRP. And then reading that, I w- one of the reasons I enjoyed that so much is because it actually reminded me of how Spacesuit Will Travel. You know, trying to get across the, get across a desolate thing. You know, and trying to put all these things together. I'm not sure if you've read The Martian yet, but it does it does feel oh, yeah. it, there's a, there's a very similar vibe there. Um, it really gives you a feel of like, okay, it's not just about this bit of technology or that bit of technology, the story is the technology, or the technology is the story. Like how it works really gets down, mm-hmm. you really get down into the nitty gritty of it, and it feels very real. Yeah, it's, I. I it, about that too.
1: Uh, it's explained on the Wikipedia entry that um, that one of the things Heinlein was doing during World War II was working on pressure suits for, uh, I guess, bomber pilots. Mm. Um, oh, wow. So he would have had to be looking at the sort of the tech that would have been later developed for the astronauts, right?
3: Yeah. And this is before anyone had been into space and they seems to have already worked out like all of the technology needed to be yeah. so mm. in a space. Pretty much. I, I just I looked sure at it it, like it all works place. exactly
1: that way, but it's 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 pretty close uh, as yeah. far as I can tell. Um do you guys pick up on all the all the drugs that were in uh,
0: Oh yeah, for his- <laughs> Remamine. <Yes>. All right.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's got he's got uh, you know, maltose which I think is just like uh, Easily converted into sugar, mm-hmm. but he's also got uh, Dexedrine. dexedrine. Uh, no, yeah, De- is it Dexedrine? Yeah. Dexedrine's
0: got codeine.
1: Yeah, codeine. He's <laughs> got Dexedrine. Um, he's 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 tripping.
3: Yeah, but he but he actually set, well because he works he works in a um, pharmacy Yeah, you know he he works in place and he gets given the prescriptions or they, you know they do out like, this fraudulent prescriptions just so we can stock it all up. I actually do like the, I really do like that, the whole section at the beginning of the book where he's building it and putting it together and he puts Mm -hmm. it in the water and he sits it, you know, he sits in it in a, inside a um, stream and things just to uh, to
1: weigh him down
3: with rocks and things to keep himself underwater. It's very, you know, it is a lot of fun, all of those sections at the beginning.
1: I I have a question for Mark, because this is a technical question, which is really a joke question, and a very science fiction-y, this is going to make Luke happy, nerdy question. Okay, you ready? Mm -hmm. What kind of voice mistake did you make throughout all of the parts where he's in his spacesuit? (laughs) Um, Gee, I don't know.
5: Your voice should have been up here!
1: Oh yeah, no,
0: that would have been terrible. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it would have been oil awful. Oil. <laughs> but it, it would have been accurate. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes um, you I have to make sacrifices
0: for listenability. For listenability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, with a helium oxygen mix, mix you're going to have uh, everybody
3: tagging very hard. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think he mentioned that, though, did he?
3: In the forecast yeah, th- audio. In the uh-huh. full cast audio version, which is the one that I listen to, they do actually have a reference to that about you know, and somebody does speak high in a voice, but then it's dropped very quickly, you know, because it isn't <laughs> it isn't mentioned in the story. So then they just carry on and, like you say, just for listenability reasons, yeah. not do the helium voice all the time.
0: While we're while we're talking about the spacesuit, it's um, it's almost um, kind of like oh gosh, I, I, gravity's been out for a while and. I, I guess we can sort of spoil it and talk it about it. It doesn't really spoil it, but it reminds me his conversations with um Oscar, um, personifying oh, the that- spacesuit reminds me of that um kind of big wow mo- moment in gravity or some people saw it as a wow moment where, you know, the the spacesuit is um giving him advice and there's that one point where he's trying to get up on a ledge or something and he can't figure it out in the space. It's like, Well, just use the hammer and that was that was very um I wonder if um um, Alfonso Cuaron's son, who wrote the screenplay for Gravity, had uh, read this and gotten some in- inspiration from this because it, it felt very similar. Oh,
1: well, I wonder. I wonder about this. Um, does anyone recall why Oscar is called Oscar? I was trying to remember that too, and I don't. I don't
3: think it. I don't think it I ever it was is. Yeah, that was his name, that was on his nameplate, he was n- number O or whatever.
1: Okay, yeah, that that seems more likely. Um, I, I, one of the things that I do like about this novel that a lot of people uh, I don't think do as much anymore is he uses the names of, of companies. It's made by Goodyear, right? <laughs> that adds a level of verisimilitude that you don't see when you're, you know, genericizing the future. Mm-hmm. This seems a lot more. Uh, I, I read one review; somebody said that it was set in the 1950s. I do not think it is set in the 1950s. Oh, uh, no, that's long way into the future. Yeah, I, I would I would guess
2: the 1980s minimum, mm-hmm. right? Actually, but it is this yeah, is people are going to the moon, right? There's a contest where you
4: can yeah, sure,
2: yeah, on the No, but, but it is sort of set in the man.
4: 1950s. Come on,
1: oh wow, you know, so it's so so does the social like mores and uh, yeah, yeah. Soap soap yeah. so commercials are definitely a more <laughs> 30s 40s <laughs> thing than even the late 1950s is my guess. But
3: now I have yeah. a some some the, the I have some views on this relating to this book. For example, like with. Uh, um with gravity, gravity is a movie which I think is is a movie which is set now, but uses technology from the past mixing with technology right, right. from the future you know you've got the Chinese space station and you know NASA space shuttle orbiters in space at the same time, and that just doesn't happen whereas all the technology yeah. involved does feel very feels very current mm-hmm. um this book it you can kind of do the same thing it's just like oh, there is technology from the current day which would be in the 1950s and a bit from the future from the 1960s like you know it's the technology from the 1950s but people were on the moon but using the technology in the 1950s to get to the moon does that make sense <laughs> yeah so the te- technologically it's the same as the 1950s and everything else is the same same in the 1950s but they've just kind of rearranged stuff that they they've got they've gone further like it felt like in gravity however there is this section in the, in in the book which for me is, is one of the like kind of weaker world building parts where he gets to, um, the mother things planet and is there saying, goes. Oh, and they had a library and it's different from our library. We have this technology and this technology and this technology at home, but here they have this technology and this technology and this technology. But the stuff that he's describing at home isn't, it wasn't around in the 1950s and it's already out of date now and it never <laughs> was really there. So that's the bit, like if that would never been mentioned, if he had never talked about what technologies were available on Earth in the future that it's set in or in the current time that it's set in beyond just the space stuff, beyond just the spacesuits and the spaceships and the other things that they have on the moon and on Earth and things. Uh, but when he goes into more the sociological kind of inventions like, oh, and this is how libraries work in our, on, back on Earth, but now here they work. Mm-hmm. This is how they work on the Mother Things planet. But even the stuff on the Mother Things planet is really quaint. It's like, oh, and they have color pictures. Oh, color pictures. And they can call <laughs> up anything. You know, and now we're walking around with phones with Wikipedia on in our pockets and things. And it's just that that's the thing that feel, felt more quaint. I don't I actually quite liked it, all the, the, the space one that feels really current still. Even now, the space, oh, industry, yeah, space technology still feels good. The, the one the, thing the that
1: is going to be the hardest for any young person reading this book today is is none of that you know, pseudo futuristic stuff. It's gonna be the stuff that absolutely is completely outdated, which is his favorite thing. His slide rule. <laughs> right.
5: Yeah. it's hey, well, a better invention than girls.
1: I didn't know what a slipstick
3: was. I had to look I had to ask him wait, what's a slipstick? <laughs> like, but I felt well, I felt list. that. I felt actually all of these things. You could just say my favorite thing in the world is my. Well, you can't even say calculator or you know Texas Instruments scientific. It's like well, it's my my compass, iPhone set. <laughs> with a Mathematica on it or something. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't even know what it could be because it would be like saying, oh, my favorite thing in the world is something that everybody else can have access to trivially.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, remember that he says
1: that when he he and his dad bought it, they had to eat uh-huh. a yeah, for a week yeah. or a month yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah, like boy, they, the technology sure was expensive back then.
2: <laughs> Wait, isn't his lipstick a slide rule?
1: It is a slide yeah. rule. Okay. Yeah.
4: Well, but maybe, maybe if his dad would get off
0: his ass and get a job. Uh. <laughs> okay, okay, Mark's getting angry. <laughs> <laughs>
5: well, just, um,
1: I, I, we got to talk about it. We got to talk. Yeah, about it. those were some yeah. of my favorite scenes early on, actually. I okay. By the way, guys. um, this is a really, I mean, this is a really inspirational book for me, also, and I think a lot of other science fiction writers. Um, very second line or third line into the book, Dad was reading Jerome K. Jerome's Three Men in a Boat. I didn't know if that was a real book, so I tracked it down. I read the book years and years ago. This happened. Um, it's a really funny book. If you guys haven't read it, it's it's very funny. Yeah. Um, and.
4: It's also a big uh, influence on uh, the Connie Willis novel, To Say Nothing to the Dog, yeah.
1: Exactly, Um, which is also a funny book, although that one is – it's set, I think, in the time period. It's like a time travel story, right?
4: Yeah, it's – they actually – the characters meet the three men in the boat at a certain point. Right. Oh, Uh, wow. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And do they bring them a can opener? (laughs) Uh,
4: (laughs) I forget at which point they meet them, but –
1: no, I don't think they actually uh,
4: interfere with the uh, with the timeline.
1: <laughs> no, that would kind of ruin the yeah. But it, it, it's funny because you, you know Connie Willis has got to have read Three Men in a Boat because of of this book. Could be
3: probably. Uh, I, I
1: I think I even heard her say that once. So oh. Oh, um, maybe,
3: but it is in the U.K. Okay, it's man, quite a famous book in its own right. It it is a uh, classic yeah, in its own right. But not
1: uh, you know. But think of the generations, right? Like. Heinlein is a much earlier generation than uh, Connie Willis.
4: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, books go out of fashion. I'm talking about reading The Prisoner of Zenda. Nobody knows what that is. You know, that was hot, that was really hot in the late 19th century, but that's not going to be a hot book today unless you are a classics reader, right?
4: Oh, yeah. So uh, say nothing, To Say Nothing of the Dog uh, has the dedication to Robert A. Heinlein, there you go In have spacesuit will travel first. Introduce me to Jerome K. Jerome's three minute about to say nothing
1: of the dog. So not just you, Jesse. There you go. No. Yeah. I, I, I've i read it. So I, I, I must've remembered something like that. Yeah. Um, it's it, Heinlein's uh, so frustrating because you, you love the way he can explain things and you love, I mean, I have a love hate relationship with his confidence because uh, I'm I'm pretty sure Luke's wrong about <laughs>
3: about the Hugo somehow. Yeah, I am I'm actually. Not I sure. it, up. it was it was actually the first year he was not. This book was nominated, uh, but James Blish won for A Case of Conscience, and then Robert Heinlein won the next year with Starship Troopers. So I was actually totally wrong. So he, he I believe the first, the first one is Double
1: Star. Right. I, I believe the first Hugo nominated or Hugo winning science fiction novel was Double Star. But the thing is, is I'm not confident. Um, and the reason I'm not confident is because I'm a totally fallible human being. Um, when Heinlein proclaims something, um, it doesn't feel like he has any connection with fallibility, because all his characters sort of line up behind it, unless they're uh, the Ace Quiggle sort of character, you right? Know? Which is a strong... And, man, oh yeah. my God! You just want to say, no, that's not right, Mister Heinlein. There's something wrong here, and you're not you're not thinking of this perspective. So. I was very frustrated late, late in the book when they're ha- at that um, security council meeting, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, you know, they just condemned an entire species to the void, right? For the actions of a few of that species. Uh, and I can kind of get an understanding of them as being a, a security council. At first though, we were told it was just a trial and sort of a, I think we're eased away from the idea that they're just monstrous by having them be, you know, sort of a, a, rogue vigil vigilante committee. Yeah. Um, so I guess my complaints are mitigated by that, but even the father, you know, the way the father deals with the IRS, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I,
0: know. <laughs>
1: uh, I, I know what Heinlein's trying to do. Yeah. Um, but i think he wants does he does he want us to argue with him is that what he wants to come to our own conclusions cuz he does certainly doesn't you know
3: invite that i don't
1: think no i think yeah. at the
3: end of the book it's clear that people everybody thinks his father is being a bit of a uh, a bit of a dick for leaving and he's kind of forced back into the real world a little bit by his son um i i just think it – yeah it is very much like a, what, what's the, what's the libertarians where you go and live in a Go and live in a valley somewhere and go in galt off. Go galt. You know, yeah. That. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the technical term, but it does feel like, like, well, I did my contribution, whatever. Now I'm leaving and I'm just going to make my own way, and I don't need any of your support <laughs> or you anything. But it does feel like he's like he knows that his son could be getting into the best college if he just, you know, asks someone. I, I know it's weird to say this, but he's making his son. Do all the work and get there in his own sweats and stuff, which but he, is a good thing. He fix. also said he also said that uh, le, it says
1: later on that his dad had purchased him like a, uh, a an education scholarship. or something, yeah,
5: yeah,
1: right. And he's so just he waiting to see what it. he would do with it. It's like yeah. that's kind of uh, the father asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. The I'm an asshole.
4: yeah, the other yeah, thing I, is. Where is, he, where is he getting money from? It doesn't seem like he has a job. It seems like Kip no, is like the he's only one who works.
1: <laughs> I think he's Heinlein. I think he's a writer.
0: <laughs> uh, that
1: could be. Um, he, is a write- he is writing, I think. That's my problem yeah. with
0: most fiction anyway, is that money is is just sort of a, a plot device. It's never really shown where people get money. It just sort of turns up when they need to get it, or, or it turns up when it when they need to not have the it the money
1: basket in this story. I mean, it, it is central to the way Kip like Kip has to deal with the world. Right. Yeah. But he sort of adopted the, the philosophy of his father by tacit or something. But later on, it turns out, uh, it turns up again in Heinlein's religion book, which is the stranger in a strange land. You guys remember that there's a money basket inside the church of, of, uh, uh, the Martian, what's his name? Uh, Michael John. Michael, Michael, yeah, it's been a while since I read that book um anyways there, you you go into the church right or the house or whatever, and there's a money basket right there, and some people take lots of it, but other people they come in and they leave it, and in the end they're told that they have to siphon the money out because it's always getting over full. <laughs> And I was like, okay, Heinlein's making some sort of reference here to you know how religions work. Maybe this is about Scientology. I don't know, but what I do know is that that money basket idea has not been picked up by the majority of families that I know. No, yeah. no. Why? Why is he put that in there? Why is that idea like a an idea? Is that is that what Heinlein did in his own life? Like, is don't trust the banks. <laughs> I guess. I get, I mean, I I don't like. You know, putting all my money in the banks, but I don't have a lot of money, so it's not a big deal.
3: (laughs) This is the thing in this book that I think this is the reason why I would recommend this book first, because there's so many things which doesn't feel like uh, Heinlein is preaching in these ways. It's only when you put these things together with other Mm. books, you're like, oh, and that was in that book, and that book, and that book, and it's in this book. Oh, that makes me think of this, and this is, you know, there's this really kind of like the, the only kind of queasy bits that I get about, you know, his his. Uh, obsession with old men sleeping with younger women is like at the end it's sort of like oh and his you know he mentioned at some point that his father is older than his mother and then at the end of the book it's like oh yes your father was the brightest man in the university and then he married his brightest student and then you're the (laughs) result i'm a bit like and then it's they're saying oh (laughs) there's you um there's you kip and there's uh, and then there's Pee-wee, and they're like, "Do you like Pee-wee? And I'm like, "She's I nine years know. old. And <laughs> you're eighteen years yeah. old. You're yeah.
1: start years grooming
3: 11 years. your 10 year old girl to yeah, to get yeah, the yeah it's an arranged marriage. Um, oh, and I was yeah, just, it was but it's just like these little hints in there, which aren't it, like just on its own. It's not. It wouldn't be too bad, but knowing later Heinlein and knowing other Heinlein, I'm just like, Ugh, no, don't, yeah. don't don't infect these juvenile books with that. because where the, it all very, came from.
1: Incestuous quality to all of Heinlein's writings. I mean, the, there is this, you know, the way they, these characters, uh, the way I misremember this book is that, uh, it was his little sister. Um, and it, it, totally fits that he's, she's the little sister, right? Because in other books like, uh, Podcane of Mars, there's the big sister and the little brother. Um, and in that relationship, he's the Holy terror and she's the, uh, she's the Kip character, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that relationship between family being too close together, maybe like up in a cabin in the, in Colorado off a country road, you know, it's like th- there's something kind of, uh, too, uh, you know, even going back to whose point was it uh, that uh, the parallels between the characters in the later part of the book and the early part of the book, um, you know, okay. matching them out that 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 sort of everything feeds to the center, everything's always coming back to the center of the book, which is yeah. some sort of i mean it, it's it's kind of like every character's Heinlein we know that because he wrote it, but also every character agrees with, yeah. <laughs> with every other every, character or fits yeah. every together.
3: character every character is Heinlein, but every female character including the sisters of the character, as also Ginny, his wife, in real life. And every female character is also kind of his mother and his sister. And, and yeah, that's exactly. where it all gets really, really weird, you know. Yeah, really weird. Yeah, but, just, the, but, it, but the thing is, it wasn't, it's not Kip and Wee who have any kind of romantic feelings or anything. That is very much we're just friends or kind of like, a, like say, a brother and sister kind of relationship. <laughs> well, but it, it feels like Professor's... It feels like these professors are doing like, you know, weird eugenics experiments. It's sort of like, well, your father is intelligent and this is intelligent and Pee Wee's intelligent. Now, if we just put them together, you guys are going to have even more intelligent kids and you're going to be the leaders of the brains in the, of planet Earth in this wider society in the future. I, I, I just didn't need that. And it only felt like it came in at the very end of the book and it doesn't affect the rest of the story, unlike the weird. Sexual stuff doesn't, like in Moon is a harsh, harsh mistress or a stranger in a strange land. You know, I didn't think it needed to be in there.
1: And that's Mark. You're saying there's, there's some, there's some sexual
4: tension. Uh, he does, yeah. He says at a certain point, like, oh, you know, she might be. She seems uh, like I think it's after she like gets clean for the first time,
5: right, and it's right. like,
4: oh, she could be cute maybe in a few years, and like yeah, she's also teasing him about like. Uh, you know, uh, oh, you know, a, a, at the dance, you'll you'll ask to be on my dance card all night, and <laughs> mm. there there is a bit of that. But yeah, right. I mean, yeah, that that you could just sort of write off as you know kids teasing each other. But within the context of everything else in this book, it's hard to do that.
1: Um, the, yeah, the other incestuous thing is of, they've got the mother thing, and it's the mother thing to both of them, right? Right. Circumstances, they're they're a family, right? And that, uh, yeah, it, it does give you a sort of a creepy feeling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, you know, that's just Heinlein. What can we do about that? I don't. Yeah, know. Yeah, I mean,
5: uh,
4: there's a there's a really telling part when uh, when he first lands on Vega yeah. and he's trying to do the calculations. He's like, "Well, it's 28 light years away, so if we were going at the speed of light, everybody on Earth." you know, will have aged twenty eight years. That means dad'll be over a hundred. So th- wait, right. his dad's in his seventies? Yeah, And then yeah. he talks about how his mother might not even have grey hair after twenty eight years.
5: What? Oh, what? <laughs> how this is undergrad? Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> it's it's somewhat upsetting.
0: <laughs> See it's interesting for me because I've never I read uh, "Time to the Stars" a long time for the stars a long time ago. Um, that, that's the only other Heinlein I've read, so I don't have the uh, Heinlein baggage that. <laughs> the rest no, of you but guys "Time have. for the
3: Stars," "Time for the Stars." Doesn't he go and, and he and he meets up with his his. It, 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 so, what is it in his twin or something like yeah, that yeah his brother of telepathy His twin's daughter and then in another connection it goes down and then they get together and marry at the end or something I kind of, anyway there is some weird stuff going on there with his own great nef- niece or something great great niece yeah, or something there is, some, there is weirdness going it. on there it, there is let me just say there is weirdness which oh, I'm is sure.
1: I, I'm it's pretty much weirdness in all of them, to some yes. degree or another. Uh, one I would recommend uh, for you, Seth, and anyone else uh, who's trying to get into Heinlein, and after they've read this great book, um, even though you know we're complaining about all sorts of things, it is a fabulous um <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, is uh, Tunnel in the Sky? Tunnel in the Sky is. Uh, it, oh, I'll sell it to you, kids. All right. Here it is. All right. Here comes. It's the original Hunger Games. It's it's, it's basically, uh, it's sort of a combination of, uh, what's that, what's that juvenile, uh, that they make you read in school that's set on an island full of children who've crashed in an Lord airplane? Of Lord, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. It's Lord of the Flies, uh, meets Heinlein, uh, in outer space, right? Uh, with, with the kind of Hunger games ask uh, things. But instead of it being, you know, we got to all kill each other within 24 hours. They all develop their own societies, which of course, I mean, timeline gets to play, uh, with, you know, I'm going to create perfect utopias. <laughs> and, and, the, and there's a couple of uh, timelines. Worst trait, in my opinion, is his straw man characters. Yeah. Um, th- when he creates anybody who doesn't agree with the main character's philosophy, or the philosophy of the grandfather who's teaching the main character or, you know, the competent older man who's teaching the main character something. Um, that person is a straw man. Their arguments don't hold together. They're just mm-hmm. stupid and ignorant. Right. Um, so there's that problem. But other than that, it is a fun uh, sort of survival exercise using Heinleinian style thinking, which is generally is a good thing mm-hmm. he's got a lot of i mean the reason it is so frustrating with heinlein is because he, you cannot dismiss him uh because he is so smart and so good at relating things to us that when he says something confidently about a space you can rely on it as being basically gospel mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. when he says it about you know of how family relationships should be organized then you start saying, wait a second, are you sure about that? Yeah. That, that that feeling is is very frustrating. Well, but it's still good stuff.
0: Well, Tam and I were talking earlier, uh, going back to the book's strengths, um, yeah. about how just smart, um, culturally smart Heinlein is, and how packed this book is with uh, everything from modern, well, contemporary con- cultural references to, um, you know, bits of classical Latin and uh, yeah, all that. So it's just I'd love to do a close reading of this book. I wish i had had more time to take notes on all those because I think not only are they in there, but if you look at some of them, um, probably um, some of them are significant in a, in a literary way to um, actually building
1: on, building on the,
0: the text's ideas. So. I, I,
1: would be, I would not doubt it at all if you just take that first section. right? I, uh, another thing I want to talk about that I think is kind of cool is when is the story being told? Because it starts off with uh, the first line is, "I have this spacesuit, see." Right? Who is he telling this to? Mm. Uh, I think I, that that might be what that tape is later on that they they play. You know, that the alien father thing. Uh, doctor, so you actually
3: getting the story within the story. That's
1: right, because he uh, I'm not so sure. Well, it's
3: it's not a perfect
1: fit, but I mean, who is he telling this story to?
3: Can I just go back to some uh, who was just saying was that Scott no who I can't remember who was saying that, that. Was Seth. Seth Seth Seth. oh not Scott Scott's not around anymore is he he's got his own podcast <laughs> he's got his two other podcasts um no. yeah so I, I really like that bit at the beginning where they say oh he just says how is our family council organized and then it's like yeah. dad ordered me to go and do this 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 and it's so for, for me that's such fantastic writing I again I don't know if you can you know attribute all of the thoughts of the dad or even of Kip himself to to Heinlein, but it's just really great writing, you know. Sort mm-hmm. like, oh, and I came, home and all the kids voted this, and everyone was doing this. Oh, we should have that, and it's sort of like, Dad, how is our family council organized? And it's not a council; it's a dictatorship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there,
1: there's kind of something good sort of in of the there. There's something good in there about education too, because we get very frustrated with education. Uh, the way the education system works. The father, uh, when he sees, you know, Kip's textbooks, he's, he makes corrections or whatever. But he also says, look, this is, this, you know, underwater basket weaving might be all great and good for you. However, um, <laughs> that's not going to get you into a good university. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so he says, you know, oh, here, try these. And then Kip has to fight his way to learn Latin and I guess that pays off later on, but, uh, yeah, all the education yeah, keep, stuff feels very, the,
5: yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, the thing is, is this actually is my experience as well, right? I did not learn much in school. Um, right. and the reason I didn't learn very much in school is because I was learning on my own because school was, uh, it was prison. It was a place I had to go, a uh, thing you had to get through. Um, and it, I mean, if you look at the society around us, um, and the lack of knowledge about stuff, <laughs> you got to say that school is not as effective as it should be, at least in, in, after a certain point, you know, after they teach kids how to do basic math and and basic writing, you can't, you cannot seem to instill a, a love of great learning by forcing kids to go to school. Right. At least not in the kinds of institutions that they've got in this book. And we still have today. Right. Of all the things that have not changed in this book, you know, they still have, they had coffee then, they have coffee now. Uh, <laughs> the education system is exactly the Absolutely. same.
0: Absolutely, yeah, it felt very very modern, very, you know, the, the ideas and the philosophy debate at the beginning is very appropriate for...
1: And I think the appropriate response to it is to read, have space suit, will travel. I agree. And adopt the philosophy that Kip has, Yep. which is, I'm going to learn this shit on my own, yeah. because Everything is interesting. Yeah. And when you read Heinlein. There is this feeling like you are learning stuff as as you are going through. the. I mean, I I, I certainly didn't adopt his quasi libertarian philosophy of a lot of things. Uh, not sure exactly how it would all fit together anyways. But I learned a lot about space. I learned a lot about the planets. I learned a lot about history. I, le- I learned to read a bunch of good books. You know he he drops these book names in yeah in a lot of books, and it really helps i mean this this is a great way to start your education
2: yeah, yeah I, was, I was wondering if uh, the kid was purposely smart or if it was just Heinlein being the kid
1: it's hard to i mean the the question is if you give like if you give this book to a class full of students, is this going to turn everybody into Heinlein? I don't think so. Um,
3: I think, I don't think, like, Kip is smart, but he's got, he's got a very, he's got a specific kind of smart, you know, like, at the beginning, you understand that he is just a bit of an idiot, but his growing up is compressed, or his, you know, all his gaining knowledge and all these other things is compressed down into that first chapter or two, when it's talking mm-hmm. about how he did this, and he learned that, and he learned this. It's very but much like Rico.
1: He's very much like Rico from Starship Troopers, the next book, right? Yeah. Because he 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 knows he's not the smartest, uh, you know, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, uh, but he's determined to work hard. And yeah, you know,
3: things and That fall was one in. of my notes. Wow. That was one of my notes, and that's that's the same. Like you say, it's, it's the same for me. I know I'm not that smart. I just know I have put in a lot of reading and a lot of exactly. thinking and a lot of practice into everything I do. And uh, part of that is from this book I, if you listen to the SFBRP episode number 100 where i talk about um philosophy uh, uh science fiction and personal philosophy or whatever it is and and mm-hmm. uh, and it's really annoying because after i read this this book just this last time i went back and listened to that episode and what i should have done is just reviewed this book ah. <laughs> uh, uh, it, because there's so much of it, which is just like, yes, this is, yeah, this is it, this is it. There's this great quote at the beginning, and it's quoted again at the end, where it says, um, there's no such thing as luck, there is only adequate or inadequate preparation mm. to cope Absolutely. with a statistical universe. And there's a point where you,
1: you, you hear that, and you say, I don't know if it's scientific or not, but what I do know is that I'm adopting that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And the thing is, I have done that like my entire and this is what I talk about in the episode 100 in way too much length because I should have just quoted that line and just said, what you need to do is that I live my life as this is what I say in the podcast. I live my life um, as though I'm a time traveler uh, who's gone back in time to today, but I haven't. But I need to know all of the stuff that I need to get by. And of course kit knows all spacesuits and he knows technology and he knows science and all that kind of stuff that doesn't isn't really going to help me because i know that's not my how my brain works but i've got to know music and writing and acting and photography and video stuff and all of these different things that i do as a professional i've got to have all of those things ready so when someone says hey can you do an hour-long comedy show i can say yes Mm -hmm. or they can you can you do you have an album for me? And I can say yes and pass them a CD or do you know this trick or that thing or do all these kind of stuff and I do it in very much a media way. Like, So if someone ever comes to me and says, hey, uh, we're looking for a novel. Do you have one? I can go, yes, have a look here. I have these novels written and all of them is not for the time that I'm doing them. It's preparing to have that statistical thing that will pop up and that has right. actually what happens. That is what has happened in my life. All of my big... um all of the big steps I've taken in my career have come because someone says, "Ah, oh, we need this," and I'm like, "Well, I already have that ready. Give me a week, or give me a few <laughs> hours, or however long it's been, yeah. and I've been able to have it ready, good enough to go." And that's what my entire career is based on, in in so many ways, um, that fantastic. I've had things ready. But it isn't it isn't technological stuff; it's more artistic stuff and sure. performance stuff. But it's there and it's ready to go. Um,
1: nice. There's a nice resonance. This is uh, while well, you're saying that, I was thinking about about why this work, uh, this book is so uh, so good. I mean, the thing is, is it's technically it's not, you know, better written than any of the other Heinleins, I don't think. People say that it is. I, I don't think that that's true. But I think there's something about the way you accelerate in this book. So when we start off, he's he's stuck at home on Earth in Colorado, right? He re- sounds like he's never even left the neighborhood. His goal is to get on the moon, to go to the moon. That's that's what he says. I wanted to go to the moon, Right. Um, And his father says, well, go ahead. (laughs) I won't stop here or whatever it is, Um, which is which is a good way of, you know, uh, prompting, you know, giving permission. But, yeah, he doesn't really give him much help other than that. Uh, But then when they do, when he does accelerate towards his goal of finding this prep, Mm -hmm. right, uh, he's going to try and win that space. He's trying to win a trip to them and he wins a spacesuit. Uh, it sounded like a whole bunch of people won spacesuits, which makes me think their space program is pretty amazing. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it, was like they have numbers,
3: it was winners 6 through 100, 100 or something, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. It's like, wow, that was a lot of spacesuits. Then this soap company must be hugely – like it's like Coca-Cola or yeah. something. Right? Very powerful. Uh, but uh, So there's this acceleration there. He, and then what happens? He goes to the moon, right? I mean, that's amazing. 1958. He actually does describe how, what it's like to walk around on the moon with a spacesuit. It sounds exactly what it like what we actually saw later. And then he's off the. He doesn't. He almost makes you know his goal. He Kip even later says something like I failed at everything, um, but I had some luck. And then his father says no, there's no such thing. As <laughs> and he almost makes it to his goal there. And then boom, they're on Pluto, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you think of the way uh, human space program is supposed to develop, we're supposed to go to the moon, and that's a stepping stone to the other planets, right? And then we're going to go to the stars, yeah. if you follow Heinlein's philosophy, which I absolutely think is a great one. Um, and Pluto's the edge of the solar system. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then we leave that and we go to Vega, which is another star in in our uh, galaxy, then we leave that, we leave the goddamn galaxy, right? Um, this is, there's a, a super acceleration that happens. It is almost the kind of acceleration that happens when you are learning. Mm-hmm. Because you start off and you're kind of, you know, not doing that great at it. Um, but once you start down that way, you can feel the acceleration of mastery. What I like to call mastery, you can feel it so that, When new facts come in, you know exactly how to put it in. Mm -hmm. It's at the point in making the puzzle where you've got the outline and pieces are dropping into place, you know, pretty smoothly until, you know, that puzzle's done. The next one starts up. The next kind of problem starts up. You know how to attack the problem.
3: This I is... think it's slightly different than that when, when you're talking about problem solving. The point is, once you've learned how to do the first puzzle, the next time you come across a puzzle, it's not a puzzle anymore, and then you have a bigger puzzle. So exactly. now you've got to do the puzzle, the puzzle pieces are completed puzzles, and then when you put them together, you get another complete picture. And then when you have another puzzle, it's just another complete picture, you know, so it's sort of like a fractal kind of thing as you go up and up. Mm-hmm. I think that's more of the way, like, once, once Kip learned how to learn, once he was given mm-hmm. that, that this is how you learn. Then the next things he didn't say, oh, and then I learned algebra in this way, this way, and this way. And then I learned calculus in this way, and this way, and this And then I Latin in this way, and this way. You know, he doesn't need to do this. He says, and then I read this book and that book and I learned that, you know. Yeah. And then later on, he brings up stuff that he's learned, which he didn't even ne- need to tell us. But that's, you know, we've already zoomed out of the picture so far that, you know, those, the, they're, they're but, just kind of
1: steps. This zoomy thing. So, like, um, Tam, you were saying, you know, the favorite, your favorite part of the book, and I think everybody's favorite part of the book is, is the initial setup where we're seeing him clean that spacesuit, figure out how it works, you know, test it, all that stuff. Um, but it's not like the rest of the book is crap. No, it's that initial conditions, the sort of long, sort of lazy days. Of initial conditions that allow us to look back sort of fondly on the nostalgia of that later on in the book and make us think, oh, that was a great time. You enjoy it while it's happening, but you also can look back on it. And it is like what the way people look back at, you know, when they were learning to do something, right? It's
2: also very relatable.
1: Yeah, very relatable, but it gets pretty
2: outrageous. Like by the end of the book,
1: it absolutely, and that's why you know those those lines about you know hey, he's gonna go fight space pirates. Yuckety yuck yuck um, yuck, yuck uh, yeah. Let's hear the yuckety yucks, Mark. <laughs> yuck yuck yuckety yuck. <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck yuckety that's yuck. gonna be my space suit. Will travel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so great. It's um. There's a there's something special about. I think he's. I don't know if he planned it or whatever. It's just the way it it, it accelerates. It's kind of different than the way the other books, like S- Starship Troopers is sort of a bookend, right? You know, there's, yeah, the, there's, beginning and there's the beginning of this thing.
2: beginning the action at the end, and then political. Yeah, yeah and I then was going to say, it's kind of like a bridge from his juvenile novels to his more, I guess, didactic novels. Things like that, yeah. There's a lot it's of uh, speech-making in the middle.
0: That um, Kip is is um, really teachable. And um, There's that moment where he's... Um, on the moon, and and they're they've just left the the ship, and and he and Pee Wee are trying to make it to uh, it, uh, Tom Boss Station, and uh, mm-hmm. and he he consciously swallows his pride and says, you know, look look Pee Wee, I, I I'm new at this stuff. Teach me anything you can, and and he makes a conscious decision to do that, and I think that that was a really uh, inspiring moment because um, mm-hmm. He like mm-hmm. um, like the rest of us, you know, wants to look good and wants to look like he knows what he's doing. And he just realizes that hey, this is life and death. I need to, I need to. Swallow she's my been there before, right? Yeah. I mean,
1: she's an eleven-year-old kid, but she's been on the moon before. Yeah. Um. By the way, um, is there something going on? Like, did she win that con? Like, I think there's something like the contest was rigged, and that she won the contest. Or no,
3: she you- it was. He'd bought, he'd done like, you know, with space, no, was it Virgin Galactic, how ages in the past you could buy a bond to right. invest best in company, which would later be able to reclaim as a as a trip somewhere. And her father invested but, in that, and she managed to get the but trip. I think that's a lie,
1: because if you think about what, remember, the, the whole goal of the, that her going to the moon was actually manipulated by the worm faces. The worm faces wanted her, not her, her father to go to the moon so they could yeah. snatch him. Right, so uh they planned that, Um and so I thought maybe like this, this con- like the contest being was some woman, uh, some Miss Somebody or Misses Somebody got the trip to the moon, right? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It, it 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 There's another uh, really great Heinlein novel. One of my favorites is pu- The Puppet Masters. You guys read that? Anybody oh yeah, read that?
2: I read that as a kid, like in one day.
1: It's it's really readable, right? Yeah. It's a great sort of alien invasion of the Earth story. Um, it sounds like the worm faces have quite well, uh, you know, got their claws into the Earth.
3: Well, um, they have they have humans working for them, don't they? The uh,
1: the two yeah. uh they seem to be. You know, they know about like a lot of people. Uh, maybe they got listening stations, or maybe they've got other agents or something. Um, they seem to have got their claws deep enough into the Earth that they they can you know they set up base on the moon they've set up base uh, uh, uh on pluto but they've also they also had some way of rigging a contest or sorry planting the documents to make it look like her father had won a prize Yeah. because otherwise like i mean maybe we could look at it too hard and it's it makes the story fall apart but
3: yeah i don't um, think you should look at that quite that hard yeah <laughs> there are there are
1: the, the, don't read close. Read that part, uh, Seth.
3: <laughs> so, Tam, yeah. I've got a, I've got a question for you. Yes. One that I uh, one an area, You just I saw you post on Twitter before. You said um, the the movie version or if there's a screen adaptation, it be sh- should be done by. Let me have a look. What did you say?
2: PBS. PBS.
3: Why PBS? Now,
2: well, they they, they adapted uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Laith of Heaven and It was really an intelligent adaptation. This is like yeah, that's true. Uh, several years ago. So I, I think I think this book has some really intelligent parts that uh I think a big budget movie would just uh, gloss over. Absolutely. I think PPS would think give more attention to it.
3: Yeah. I don't see this as a, a good series uh, or a mini series or anything like that. I think this would make a really good two part movie. So it'd be have like it would be have spacesuit will travel, for part one, have spacesuit and then part two, <laughs> will travel in a way. Like so, the the cut off part will be him. Like it'll end when he gets to where they wanted to be on the moon. If you know what I mean. So he the the first half of the first movie would be him on Earth, and then scooped up and taken off to the moon, and a big adventure going on in the moon. And then the second movie would start being captured on Pluto, and then all the big space adventures where they go off to vagrants. So if you don't obviously you need to have more action and more more fun stuff going on later mm-hmm. there, but I think just one, just the first half of this book, like, before you go to Pluto, you could probably, like, you could end that story, in a way, at that point.
0: Yeah, know? that big trek from the from the ship they escaped to Tombaugh Station feels very climactic and uh, yeah. <laughs> intense. Yeah, it does, and,
3: and it's if you had them trying to get across and trying to fix the thing and there's all this, you know, it'd be a bit like probably a bit too much like gravity has just been, you know, trying to get from one place to the other and not run out of air and do all that kind of stuff. But if at the same time they were being chased by the worm faces or being chased by the two, um, what is it, skinny and fatty or whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. The, Jock the and Tim. was it?
0: Jock and Jock Tim. And Tim. By the way, Mark, <laughs> that was my other favorite narration was um, your Tim is basically just consisted sort of, shut up. <laughs>
3: shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Shut up, shouldn't up. But if, if if it was those two kind of working with aliens and chasing them across, you know, a bit a bit more cat and mouse kind of stuff with the, you know, and it could almost be done in real time, like like gravity is almost in real time, you know, it's, it starts and they've got this amount of time to get out of it, you know, you could you could really accelerate through there. So uh, that would be that would be my adaptation. And also, I would do it with de- where you know, in this Oscar talks to him, I would definitely have Oscar with a real uh, like it, like a. In the movie, it would have to be more modern technology, and I think an artificial intelligence talk back to him, so he can say what's going on, and Oscar can say blah blah blah, two hours left of oxygen, you know, and actually Making have a voice theory. talking back. <laughs> yeah, like a Siri yeah. kind of voice. Oh, but this is that's a standard that's a standard science fiction trope um, of of the the spaceship talking back and, and giving guidance, you know. So,
1: uh, guys, I want to get your thoughts on the, open the, helmet the trial. Now. The trial sequence yeah. later on in the book. What do you what do we what are we to make of the you know they they bring a Neanderthal they they bring the Roman centurion and then the two the, the two kids I mean it's I think it's the weakest part of the book for me um I, I like pretty much all of the book this it's not terrible but um what what is Heinlein trying to tell us
3: exactly I just think There's- it's bad science. <laughs> like if you're gonna do any trial, it has to be blinded. It has to be, you know, you have to have a significant sample size and, you know, error bars and stuff. I just think it's, I just think that teaches really bad science on a, gal- yeah. a galactic scale, which is why it fails for me. Because it I think. I think it could work but it feels too set up it feels too neat too packed yeah. whereas if it had been like these they'd been collecting people for the last 2000 years and it isn't just like ah some romans and then some modern day people maybe maybe if it had been what, what like in the movie was it bill and ted's bogus uh, excellent <laughs> adventure or whatever it is and yes. they and they go through time and they pick up this person and that person they pick up napoleon and that's how to do homework if you yeah if you'd have if they'd have picked up a lot more people like maybe two people every year all in that time but kip ends up having to be the one to be the voice of it because he's the latest one or something i think they it could have been obviously it's more difficult to crowbar that into a story, but I just think it could have been a learning, a, a bit better learning points there in terms of, um, experiment design. Yeah. Anyway, yeah
1: that sounds, that, uh, that sounds right to me. Any other thoughts on that guys? Yeah. Mark, what did you, I mean, you narrated the thing. What, what did you, as you were,
0: as you narrator narrating it, what did you think? Or,
4: Well, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's not a very good trial. Um, the fact that um, uh, the way the the Neanderthal is presented is um, a bit weird. Um, yeah. But also the fact that that he then has to go and say like, oh, maybe these these people are descendants of the old race, uh, yeah. whereas the the Neanderthal wasn't. And it's like, really, Heinlein? Do you not believe in human evolution? Like, what what is your deal here? He's mm-hmm. got to he's got to do this sort of chariots of the gods style um, uh, thing. Um, yeah, which is just like, oh, well, you know, there's all the animals and then there's these humans, which sort of have the spark of the divine that came from aliens. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that,
1: that, you know what? That that makes it yeah even weaker. Yeah, yeah. I like <laughs> definitely uh, is not a perfect writer and. <laughs> that shows up. I, I I think I read somebody was saying it uh, got positive reviews, although some people complained about the rushed ending or something. Um, I don't. Uh, yeah, it, you know, when Heinlein sticks to the the stuff he knows really a lot about, like I guess spacesuits and and you know rocket trajectories and stuff, he he seems to do really well. Yeah. I don't know what he is in biology, but he seems to do really well in that department. We need to talk about the music, too. I don't
3: understand understand why if they can, if the final aliens can, like the Galactic Council or whatever it's called, if they can um, influence time and do this kind of time travel, return them to the time and place from which they came. It's like, if they can do that, why can't they just wait around and see if the Earth does anything bad? And if the Earth does something... Yeah, pull someone
5: from the
4: future.
3: I just felt that was just, yeah, just those last two scenes. I mean, I like the writing. There's some really good, fun stuff in these last scenes. But it, it does kind of fall apart, you know, like when you introduce like in the latest Star Trek movies, if you introduce like someone with blood who can bring anyone back to life, you've just cured <laughs> death. That has a lot bigger yeah. implications than just within this plot. It's got implications e- everywhere else. And it kind of breaks any storyline where anybody dies ever if you've cured death. And the same with time travel. As soon as that's introduced, the the story suddenly has to be about time travel or be about the effects of you know, yeah, it, it,
1: it, it is a super weapon in a certain sense. That yeah, it, it, it's a point a con- of
3: no return. It's a uh, it, it's singularity, a, <laughs> not quite a singularity tipping point or whatever you want to call it. If we're going to go right. for buzzword, sure. I, I think
2: Janeway said, "I hate time mechanics." That's always a contradiction.
1: <laughs>
3: well, it didn't stop
1: her from hanging out there, though, did
3: it? Yep. Nope. Um, well, I, I also what's the, the line in in uh, in The Simpsons? It's like in our house, you will obey the second law of thermodynamics. Right. <laughs> yeah. the, I think
1: yeah. I saw
0: that when
3: Lisa makes a she makes a, uh, perpetual, a perpetual motion. motion
1: machine. Oh, Classic. Um, you know what? I think Lisa Simpson's a, a person who would read. Uh, have space suit would travel. Absolutely,
3: she would because I have I have a a blog post here which I I thought would be relevant to do. I don't normally read John Scalzi, but somebody put a link to this, and and I knew we were talking about this, so it came up. It's an anecdotal observation relating to Robert Heinlein and The Youth of Today. It's because he gave his uh, 10-year-old, 11-year-old daughter – I actually don't know how old his daughter is now – but Starman Jones – and he says, which was, which is one of my favorite of the Heinlein juveniles. And she looked a bit skeptically. She read a few chapters, put it aside. And it's a, you know, it's just a very short blog post just saying, oh, we don't really have the same things. What was my book wasn't her book. And, um, he says, I first got hold of it around 1980, 20 years, 27 years after it was originally published. Um, and I gave it to my daughter to read 60 years after its publication date. Oh my God. So for me, this book, uh, you know, cause I, when I was, whenever I read this book, when I was like 12 or something, isn't that the golden age of science fiction, 12 years old? Yeah. I but, um, it, it, it is one of those books that you've got to catch at the right time. But I think this book, you know, it's difficult to say that this book is going to, um, be relevant. I mean, like, I, I, I only know what was going on at the beginning because I know what a slipstick is because I read it long enough ago, yeah. like before. Yeah. You know, back when technology hadn't accelerated, I think acceleration, this this technological acceleration is going on so much that and, you know, cultural acceleration that it's just weird. You know, a book like this, it's like not even the weird sexual stuff and the society stuff, just the just the attitudes and not even that, but just the technology. Like What's going on is it's just weird compared to storytelling of today. It is, but I, I'm not sure that that that's
1: especially a cause of the time and the acceleration as much as the education. I think, I yeah. mean, I think that there's something there's something to be said for the education in, in the schools in the 1950s. Somehow, it's like it was easier to learn when there was. I, I sound like an old man. But, <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like uh, it was easier to learn when there, everybody was reading. And I I know people do read books still today, but I I just say you know if 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 uh, if you want to judge a society based on the consumer products it gets, just you know walk down the street and what you'll see is tanning salons, <laughs> you'll see clothing shops, you know and you know in a in in my in a relatively large city there's two bookstores or yeah. three bookstores if you want to call the one in the outlet mall, you know like
3: Jesse I I disagree entirely that uh. Thousands, if not millions, of bookstores because everyone has them I, on their phone on I their I know computer, that. But that, that's but the point. Obviously, Emma, I disagree with you.
1: obviously, um, it's not the case. And you live in Berlin, which is a you know it's a destination point for people, um, which is not the same as you know a, a you know a Seth. You live in a, an American town that's not particularly a destination point, right? Correct. Uh, when you walk down the streets, do you see a lot of people reading books? Uh,
0: no, not really. Um, and it's interesting. From the bus or whatever. And I've been thinking about this. Even the people who do read books, um, here most of them I know read the same kind of book. So you know they'll read, um, they'll get a not to knock John Grisham, but all they read is John Grisham and uh, Janet Ivanovich, and you know they they stay in the same genre. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and how um how kind of, um, it's like working out, right? It'd be like if you, if you went to the yeah, gym and only worked work out, out or something, yeah, like. exactly. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. So yeah, even though there is, um, more reading than you'd expect, it's not the wide ranging reading that actually makes you more intelligent.
3: And you think science it- fiction is?
0: Well, it's science fiction um in conjunction with history and and some fantasy and, and some political uh, yeah, it's just sort of you know, like the reading that Kip did at the beginning of at the beginning of his um
3: I happen learning to, I happen process. To agree with you. I happen to agree with you, but I do think of all like genre of all different genres I do think science fiction gives you more of history and science and of the all the of fiction. these other things. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, Especially is
1: yeah uh, this is a prime example, yeah. Um, but, you know, the, I, I was listening to the Reading Envy podcast and, um, uh, who's, uh, who's on the reading? Anybody here on the Reading Envy podcast? No, nobody here. Um, I don't know. Jenny and, uh, and, uh, Julie and Scott were all talking about. Uh, Thomas. Oh, okay. A Thomas Pynchon book. And it sounded like Scott was reading, like, the first paragraph and it was a long paragraph. I like, oh, yeah. I was, oh, jeez. Boy, I'm glad I'm not listening. I'm glad I'm not reading that book. I'm not listening to that book because um, the way they were talking about it is like, yeah, so I, I understand that this holds some appeal for people, but it isn't kind of, it's not the, when you read Have Space with Travel" and sort of incorporate it into your life as sort of a, uh, well, at least Kip's philosophy of learning or Heinlein's philosophy of learning. Um, it doesn't, those kind of books don't hold an appeal somehow I think. And and I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure that when we look back at the 1950s and say, you know, look at Heinlein and everybody was much smarter back then. I'm not sure that that's a very good, uh, you know, it's a sort of a nostalgic look back because we're forgetting all the people right. who are reading the books that we don't know anything about because we've forgotten about them. But on the other hand, um, uh, the fact that, like, I ask kids, you know, when when, when certain technology invented, they have no idea. History's got to be the you know like they don't know when televisions were event, invented mm-hmm. or or telephones or uh, just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> no.
3: Even so, even so, it's not a question they think to ask somehow. Right. Yeah, I, uh, I saw someone on Twitter mention that oh, my son was watching Terminator and he could buy the robot traveling through time. He could buy this. What he could not believe was a real thing was. Telephone books. They just couldn't couldn't be, the kids couldn't believe that there was a time when <laughs> mm. you would look up telephone numbers in in a big block of paper. Um, yeah. it's like stone knives and bearskins.
1: It is stone knives, pretty much. And, absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
3: but on the other hand,
1: when did we stop using them, right? So this this uh, you know uh, some people still do use them. I
2: still not, get them delivered.
1: Yeah. and They
0: go straight
2: into no.
1: recycling. Yeah.
2: Hey, hey, if the power goes out, it still works.
3: What is a fire? <laughs>
2: like, not like a phone book. Yeah.
3: Oh, I oh, see. You meant to light a fire with it, and all. Yeah, the light of, the fire. <laughs> or you could use it to light a fire. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, um, I, I don't know how, how we uh, we fix the problems of today, but I think by reading this book, you might mm-hmm. uh, get a start. I don't know. Can I <laughs> it, can please...
3: I share a story? Uh, uh, yeah, share a very for. specific story that about this. So this is my Virgo. No, not Virgo. This is my Magellanic Cloud story. Um, which I only realized how much, this book, how much this book has influenced my life or the, you know, the idea of no such thing as luck. There's only adequate or inadequate preparation to cope with the statistical universe. So at the end of this book, they're talking about the Magellanic Cloud. You, you remember that bit? And they're saying, oh, did you yeah. ever see the Magellanic Cloud? And his father said, oh, once I was down in Brazil or wherever <laughs> it was, but I yeah. didn't get a chance to see it because I didn't go outside. Anyway, my first trip to Australia, actually my first trip to the Southern Hemisphere, um, was back in, I guess, 2000 and I'm going to guess 2008 or 2007. Um, and one of the things that I've always wanted to see was the Magellanic clouds, probably because of this book, but also because it's a, it's a cool thing that you can't see from the Northern hemisphere. So I thought, ah, I'll see if I can find this. So I went, I was down at a juggling festival in Sydney, but I took for a few days, I took a, a trip up to a place called Katoomba, which is in the blue mountains outside of Sydney. And, um, and I thought, well, I'll go down, uh, and I met a, someone there who was also at the, this juggling festival. And uh, so we, the two of us, we went down to like outside the town to where you could look over this canyon I thought well this will be a place where there won't be any light and we'll be able to look up on this kind of you know this outlook place, this viewing platform across this whole, you know, canyon and forest and things, the rainforest there. And so I looked up and I was looking around, I was going, ah couldn't it but I printed out this um, printed out this bit of paper where with where it would be. But because I'd never been in the southern hemisphere before, like the whole sky was just wrong. You know, it was one of those weird yeah. times. The whole sky is wrong. Looking up, couldn't really find it. I was looking, I was pointing it up and I was getting like turning the map around and couldn't really see it very well, you know, I got a torch and trying to slide it there, and then there was a guy just on sort of like sort of like just a, on another kind of viewpoint, just just up above, like one story, one floor up. And he was like, "Hey, what are you looking for?" He was there with some other people. He was I was like, I said, "I'm looking for the Magellanic Clouds." And he says, "Ah, oh, what you need, where you need to look is here." And he got this laser pointer out of his pocket and started pointing out the different sites in the in the southern hemisphere sky, including the Magellanic Cloud and you know the greater and lesser Magellanic Cloud. And he was pointing out this stuff. And then I said, well, you know, I, I was—I can't remember the exact conversation, but I was like, well, how would you know all of this? And he happened to be an astronomer who worked in a nearby observatory <laughs> who just happened to be walking past and <laughs> happened to spot me looking for the Magellanic Cloud. And it is one of those times where I was just like, I mean, it was only when I read this book again now, because I guess that's the first time I've read this book since I had this experience. But it was one of those weird experiences where I was reading the end of this book and I was like, this is my life. I have had, like they're sharing at the end of the book, they're sharing their Magellanic Cloud stories and what they know the story, you know, did they see it? Did they not see it? I did see it. I wasn't prepared because I hadn't prepared properly. And if I had prepared properly, I would have seen it. And it, it was it was just the clearest example of adequate preparation mm-hmm. to living in a statistical universe, that I was in the Southern Hemisphere, I did do the right preparation, I went to the right place, and just happened to be lucky that there was somebody there with a laser pointer who There's also happened to be as astronomer. Just so me. it's just one of those things where I was just like, this. but this doesn't happen just once or twice in my life. I set my life up that mm-hmm. these things happen to me all the time, and I am one of the luckiest people I know. Purely because it, but it, this was one of those, like, it, it was, it was almost too on the nose. It was hitting the nail on the head too. It was, mm-hmm. it was too much of a perfect story to show how this book has influenced my life because it's actually talking about the Magellanic Cloud, um, and spotting it when I'm in the Southern Hemisphere. So that's my, that's my story of why this book means a lot to me, or one of the stories. Luke, you should write a self-help health 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 book. Luke's Keys. And there's nothing hey there. Just read this book. Just read have space Spaceship will travel and okay. you will understand. The, the why problem I, with the self health,
1: Book is it's a genre, right?
3: <laughs> if it was, if you could
1: solve it by reading a self help book, there wouldn't be any more, right?
3: Well, my my self help book, I guess you can go back and listen to episode one hundred of the SFBIP. It is like I live my life as though I am a time traveler who just happens to be here, and I need to be prepared in every situation that that I will be lucky if something comes along. If statistically something comes along, I will be adequate, adequately prepared. And, of course, this book wraps it up in a lot better than I did in that episode. But,
2: yeah, it just, it just I, comes
3: back to that. That's how I live my life and I, I why my I life
2: think, is at it is. I think first you have to be like an independent person with your skills or interests or whatever. And then later on, you might uh, get lucky and connect with other people that can help you along. It you think I so had to be an
3: independent person right? to print out a map to see which where to look in the sky to see the Magellanic Cloud? I think I just have to be a cur- curious person. I yeah, think that's, independent- the, that's
1: the main thing is being curious and and actually following through with it. I think a lot of people are embarrassed by curiosity. They think that yeah, it was it was on the moon, right? Kip was saying, is um, it Seth? He was saying that when he had to swallow his pride? He had to swallow his pride and yeah. just give in to the fact that he didn't know what he was talking about or doing because he didn't know where anything was. He's never been to the moon before. He barely knows how to use a spacesuit. and uh, He can't even walk right on the moon. He doesn't know how to do it. He's, he's walking around in his, his socks. <laughs> um, he needs help. The thing is, is, it is embarrassing not to know stuff, um, but that's what keeps you always striving for learning is is to not just like I see this in students is you know I'll ask them a question and they'll answer it in a way that shows they don't know the answer, but they're they're just trying to get past this question to the next question so the the, the day will be done and they'll then go home and do whatever they want to do. That is the wrong way to approach things. Always try and figure everything out all the time, and it will
3: you will figure everything out, I think.
2: The cure for boredom is curiosity, Dorothy Parker.
3: Um, I just wanted to say, a head without brains in it, does that work? Everything else, every <laughs> everything else, and lots of different evolutions have always made, they've always had brains in the head with the shortest amount of distance between the the computing center and the input, and the, and the, and the center for inputs, uh, the senses.
1: Uh, yeah, it seems to be that way. I'm... I'm
2: Heinlein uh, uh, was actually. not a
1: biologist <laughs> yeah
2: or well, where's the brain in a starfish like, he
1: didn't say that there was no brains in there by the way
3: no he said there was no brain in the head no he didn't
1: say that there was no brain he, he speculated that there was no brain in the head uh, true okay. but he
4: does smash the head and like a like, like a crate full of strawberries I think he says um, and, yum, yum. And, and the thing still can move around it just doesn't uh, it can't see or hear or anything Okay. Yeah, I he
3: just uh, eyes and his ears. Yeah, yeah, it's like just eyes and ears. But he he looked at it as the head. But uh, for me, the head the the, the technical thing for me is the head is where the brains are in a way.
0: This has been the SFF Audio podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.
5: Mother thing, make her wake (laughs) up. The end.